0: Today we're gonna learn about the importance of creating the best possible products from a guy who has developed over 2,000 products working directly with factories in China. How cool is that? Pretty cool, I think. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Serious Sellers Podcast. I'm your host, Bradley Sutton, and with me, I have Kean on the line. Keen, how's it going?
1: I'm all good, all good, man. Bradley, how are you?
0: I'm doing just delightful. Now, you're right now
1: in, in the UK, right? Yeah, right now I'm in Scotland. Yeah, that's where I'm based, but uh, heading out to the States next week, and I uh, always find myself between the US, China, and the UK. Okay, cool. Well, you, have, you have a favorite place that you've been to? Uh, You know what? I mean, like I've spent the last sort of 10 years living and working in China. So, and then I have, I have like some businesses that I work on in LA mostly. So I, my favorite cities are definitely LA and Shanghai. Uh, But home for me is Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, It's a beautiful part of the world. I don't know if you've ever been out to Scotland, but I would highly recommend it uh, to any of the listeners. Definitely check out Scotland. It's a beautiful place.
0: All right. Well, if I go there, you're going to take me to some of the best pubs out there, right?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, so we've got great pubs, but also like whiskey is our like national drink as well. So a uh, big, big whiskey fan. I hope you are as well.
0: Okay. Well, I I'm, uh, haven't been, I'm a more of a tequila person being living here in California, but I'm open. I'm open to try new things.
1: You know, I heard this because you guys have got the tequila room in your office as well, right?
0: Exactly. We might have, to, you might have to, when you come here to our office, you might have to donate a good bottle of whiskey so we can, oh. it can be the tequila and whiskey room.
1: It would be my pleasure. Uh, let's lock it in.
0: All right. Cool. All right. Now this is the serious sellers podcast, but we're talking about serious alcoholics podcast right now. (laughs) Let's, let's, uh, let's switch bases here. So again, you, you're, one of your main things I know is, is sourcing and being able to really find great factories. Now we had, you know, Steve Simonson on here before, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to kind of, you know, like do a little bit different podcasts, you know, than I did with him. He had a lot of good tips, but first of all, I wanted to talk just about how somebody, were you born in Scotland?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Scotland.
0: So how somebody born in Scotland ends up living in Shanghai, like what's the story there? How did that happen?
1: Well, I mean, I was super lucky because I was sort of, um, my father started a business about 32 years ago. So his passion was camping and outdoors. So he started a brand called Highlander, which he sort of manufactured a few products, uh, tents, rucksacks, sleeping bags. And then by the time I graduated university, he actually had like a medium sized business and he was going over to China doing all the sourcing himself. So when I graduated, he was like, Hey, there's this job for you. If you want it at a company, you can take charge of all the production. And I went to China for the first time, absolutely loved it. And then I found a real passion for developing products, you know, working with factories, going out into the middle of nowhere, coming up with new ideas. And then from there, it just sort of spiraled out of control. I got really good at what I was doing. And then uh, other brands came knocking and then started partnering with other companies and working on licenses. So yeah, I mean, I was kind of, I got offered that position, which I guess is really lucky. You know, a lot of people have to work their way up. But when I graduated from university, I could just go straight into a, a sourcing job, but I absolutely loved it.
0: So talk a little bit more about what you just said, finding products in the middle of nowhere. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, because... you know, going back sourcing like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, a lot of the big companies like they wouldn't actually go to the factories, you know, they would work with trading companies in Hong Kong or trading companies in Shanghai. And those people would go to the factory on their behalf. But I always found that like to get the best results, you have to go to the factory directly. You know, you have to build a relationship with the boss and uh, you have, you know, the best form of making products is in the factory. You know, when you want to make changes to a product and you can sit down with the factory boss or with the sales staff and tell them what you want and then they make it there and then in front of you, like, Think about all the time and money that you're saving than if you were just sending samples back and forth to the office and they weren't really understanding you properly and weren't making it correctly. But a lot of these factories traditionally were like, you know, set up at the port cities, you know, to get goods out quickly. So near Beijing, Shanghai, all these places. But as these cities started developing. The factories could no longer be located there, and it kept moving more and more inland. And because I was spending so much time in China, I could see that. So I would, as soon as a new factory opened, like you know, four hours rural into China, I would jump on high speed rail and get into that factory. And you know, the more rural you go, like the uh, different, the lower labor costs there are, like the better labor skills they have. You know, because also China's got like a aging workforce in terms of like the factory workers, because you know, such a growth in the middle class in China where now the middle class have got disposable income so they like to go to you know KFCs, pizza Huts, starbucks nightclubs so now if you're a young worker and you want to you know get a job you would much rather work in starbucks rather than work in a factory so factory workers are actually finding it a lot harder to get workers in so as a result you have to pay them a higher salary you know actually a factory worker gets paid more than what someone at starbucks would get paid uh, believe it or not and then wow. you know these workers they have to go to like the rural areas to go and build those factories to actually get 100 or 200 people who want to work in a factory. So when I say like, you know, going out, you know, into the middle of nowhere, that's like actually going into the factory and, you know, doing all and putting in the work basically.
0: Okay. So then you, I mean, just on the product, you know, production costs alone, you can, and the quality, is better if you go into these rural areas, as opposed to just the, the traditional, you know, hubs of, of where the factories always used to be, but now the cost of well, labor is, is higher there. And that, obviously that means the cost of product is gonna be higher for possibly lower quality.
1: Well, I mean, I would just suggest like stay in touch and stay in tune with, uh, with your manufacturer and, you know, take their advice of what they're telling you, because like your manufacturer will move to other areas because that area is maybe close to the raw material of like the particular product so for example one of my favorite products to manufacture is like a backpack but all the backpack factories are located nearby uh in the Fujian province in like cities like Xiamen and Shenzhou. and you know they those factories are set up together and if you you know a lot of people like search for factories on alibaba because they don't necessarily have the time or the means to go to china but even when you search a product like a backpack on Alibaba, you can see like where the factory is located, and if you just sort of like follow the city, then you can find out really the area which really specializes in that product. But for example, you know a lot of people know that the. Electronic products are made in like Shenzhen area, but then like if you see a backpack made in Shenzhen, you're like, well, are they a really good factory? Because all the good factories are in the other cities and Shenzhen's known for like electronics. So like what I'm trying to say is that once you build up an understanding of what areas really specialize in what products, then you know, you're dealing with the right factory, basically.
0: Okay switching gears a little bit a lot of people you know they do product research using tools like Helium 10 and maybe they find what's an opportunity and you know not everybody you know back in the day everybody of course their their process was hey let me just go ahead and and search for it on Alibaba and go ahead and buy it but a lot of people are are use, still using Alibaba, but I think more these days, almost just as kind of a search engine, just to kind of like test the market. But mm-hmm. if somebody's doing that, like, what are some indications in Alibaba that something might be a good opportunity or bad? Like in my mind, or what I've heard people say is like, hey, if I search for like one that, one of these things that we found on on Amazon was a, a burrito blanket, you know, it's absolutely mm-hmm. crazy thing, but it's selling really well on Amazon. But you look at Burrito Blanket on Alibaba and there's just like pages and pages, all of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Now, is that – would that be an indication like, hey, maybe you need to second guess this if if there's something like that where there's so many people who are all selling the same thing? or Or is that incorrect logic?
1: I mean, like personally, I don't really like using Alibaba because – I feel that like, you know, the best work is done with the factory directly. And I know a lot of people actually can't get out to China themselves, so they do use Alibaba, but just be mindful of that, you know, Alibaba works very similar to Amazon in that like those suppliers are paying to get to the top of that listing. Like if you see an a supplier like number one or number two, like they've paid to be there. Now do you really want to work with a factory who's paid to get your attention? Whereas like the best factories in the world and the ones that I work with, I find that the Canton Fair in China. Now their production lines are so busy because they're so good that they don't even feel the need to list on Alibaba. So the reason I don't like Alibaba is that like you're dealing with a lot of middlemen and you're dealing with a lot of not not necessarily trading companies, because trading companies still offer you a good service, but you're dealing with a lot of like resellers and it's so hard to tell, like, you know, for a beginner, like the real between the fake kind of thing. So I, and as you said, there's just so much traffic and so many products and so many uh, items on there that it's really, really hard to navigate. So for that reason, I think that like Alibaba and, you know, global is like a good uh, resource for you to, you know, get started and uh, get your business going and become profitable. But once you do become profitable, the absolute next essential stage in your business is to visit the Canton fair because, you can visit like hundreds of suppliers under one roof and, you know, you can find like 10 to 20 suppliers making the same product, like in one row. So very, very quickly, like feel the product, get an idea of who you're working with, build your relationships. And then, you know, you've saved like months of emails and send examples and, and you can accomplish that in one day uh, at the Canton Fair. But definitely I think Alibaba and global sources are a good tool for beginners. It's just quite tricky to to navigate between it.
0: Yeah, I agree. What I'm wondering is like, if somebody is to follow your advice, hey, their ultimate goal, hey, I'm going to go to the Canton Fair. I'm going to go to you. I'm going to go to wherever. But in the initial stage, they want to kind of narrow down mm-hmm. their their kind of product choices. So usually when people do product research, maybe they come up with like 10 different options and, and they're trying to narrow down to one. But in that example that I gave of like the burrito blanket, like wouldn't that be an indication to you that this could be either on the verge of saturation or or something where if every if there's like 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 different factories all kind of like showing the same product as opposed to like maybe somebody searches for something else and there there's only like maybe one or two factories that are are making this product Wouldn't that be an indication that it might be maybe a newer
1: niche? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if there's a lot of the same product uh, on a website like Alibaba, then you can tell that it's a very, very congested space. I mean, bear in mind that, okay, there might be 60 listings of that particular product, but those 60 listings might all be buying from maybe a selection of five different factories, but different people have just made their own listing. But for me, like the way I've always developed products... Is that like, how can I make this product the best product in the marketplace? So I always do my research in terms of, right, if I'm making a travel bag, I wanna make sure that bag is the best travel bag in the market. And to be honest, like, I don't really pay much attention uh, to the competition. I just go out my way to say, right, what does every traveler need? And then I write those things down. And I'm like, right, how can I then put those things into a backpack? And then I work with my supplier to really develop something innovative. So I guess there's kind of like two models. Like, are you a product developer where you're striving to develop the best possible products in the market? And then put it out, and you know, build your brand that way. Or are you just you just want to be a reseller and then basically sell what products are available to you? Personally, I much prefer like developing products uh, as opposed to just sort of taking what's available out there. But it really depends on what your skill set is. Because if your skills is like you know marketing and traffic and conversion and things like that, then maybe you just you do want to take a product because you're so skilled at the other things. But my skill set is kind of like developing the best products, so that's what I really really like to focus on.
0: So, so basically what you're saying is kind of like, you would even consider going into a little bit more competitive markets, knowing that you can differentiate your product and make it, make it better.
1: For sure. For sure. I was, I strive to make the best products in the market and uh, I don't like to just sort of take a concept that's selling and then try and. Because, you know, like how long have you got that listing? Like how long are you going to be competitive before like everyone else jumps into the marketplace and everyone's selling the same thing you are? But if you've innovated something for yourself, you know that you're the first in the market with that product. And then, because I always believe, okay, marketing is a very, very important aspect of the business. But the first step of marketing is a product development. Like what, it, what is it in the product that you can now market, which is different to everyone else? So I think you definitely have to specialize in your product first and then that follows through into your marketing.
0: Okay, that's that's good advice. I think for for anybody. Now, do you have any examples of either one of your products or maybe one of your clients' products where normally the traditional sense would have been like, oh no, stay away from that category, but because they did that exact thing and they were able to differentiate something or do something higher quality, they were still able to have a good launch and a successful product because of using that strategy that you just detailed.
1: Yeah, I mean, my background is kind of like B two B, like business to business. Like I kind of. Um, In the last sort of 10 years that I've been working, the sort of first eight years were sort of working with retailers. So, like, luckily, whenever I developed a new product, like, I just had to convince the buyer of that store, you know, whether it was a UK big box retailer or a US retailer, I would say, this is the best product because, and then that was enough to convince them to then place the order for their, you know, hundreds of stores, and that would result in very big orders. Um, But, For me, I mean, like I, I developed a, an outdoor rucksack uh, under our family business, Highlander, which was the Ben Nevis rucksack, and I named it that because Ben Nevis was the tallest mountain in Scotland, and I wanted it to be the best.
0: Wait, hold on, I, I, I think because of the 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 accent here, I can't understand what you just said. So <laughs> What is it? What kind of product?
1: Also, like a, a rucksack, so a backpack. Um. So yeah. We, Wait. So spe- spell spell the first a sack. I heard was spell the first word. R- a rucksack. R U C K. You don't
0: say. R- I have never heard of that in my life. I'm gonna Google it right here. Hold on. This, this is interesting. Rucksack. Yeah. Oh, it's one. It's one word. Yeah, yeah, one word. Whoa! I have never. This is. Yeah. It's like basically a backpack. Okay. What? Here, the first thing it says. What is a ruck? A rucksack is not a backpack. It says it has a military. Oh, okay, kind of like a military backpack
1: you know what, this is why your magnet is so good because I would list it as rucksack and you don't know what it is so you would never look for that product. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so it, it's basically an outdoor backpack, you know, clay, uh, capable of like climbing Mount Everest and I made like a 65 liter and an 85 liter uh, backpack and, you know, I just set out to make the best possible uh, rucksack that I could and then it got picked up by a magazine in the UK called like Trail Magazine and they had this thing called like Test of the Best and they compared it against all the sort of... Um, market leaders like us companies like osprey and european companies like uh deuter vaude like all, all the uh, market leaders and their backpacks were sort of retailing at 200 dollars. ours was retailing at like 115 so we were almost like half the prices those guys but our product outperformed them we scored much higher and like that just shows like the the extent to how good you work with your factory and how good your product development skills are and what features you put in your product that other people don't have. It's not necessarily like a price game. Everyone just assumes that like, okay, if I pay a lot of money for my product then it's higher quality, it's not like you can still be much cheaper than your competitors and you can still be much better than your competitors. If you just focus on the actual uh, development process and adding value to your customer, knowing what your consumer wants and being able to give that to them, it doesn't always have to be expensive. So that's just one way of you know being able to uh, differentiate from everyone else is just uh be, so i also talk about like product usage a lot as well like if i'm developing an outdoor rucksack i'm going up a hill and i'm climbing it if i'm developing a tent i'm sleeping in it if i'm developing a sleeping bag i'm going to sleep in it whereas too many people i think they just sort of see a product online they're like okay cool i'll go for that they purchase it and they put it online and then they only sort of realize the flaws in the product like once they start to get negative reviews but you are your own like toughest critic so you have to thoroughly test your own products yourself and then you can sort of come up with the benefits uh, for yourself as well before you actually put it online so you can add the most amount of value to your consumer
0: Okay. That's awesome. And, and you you brought up an uh, excellent point. And, and this is something I, I talk about with people too, is, you know, a lot of people, what they do is they make a great listing for the Amazon USA and American customers and, and it's crushing it. So now their next step is, Hey, I'm going to go ahead and expand to Amazon Canada. Hey, it's an English speaking country. I'm just going to copy my listing. I say, no, you've got to run Cerebro and Helium 10. You've got to run mag. You've got to do your entire keyword research again, because Canadian people search for different things then like, I, I forgot what it is. Or, or like, even, even in, in England and Scotland, like, what do you guys call a baby's diaper?
1: Uh, no idea. I don't have any kids. Uh, well, we call it a nappy actually.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like uh, nappy in America, that means like you have messy hair, yeah, you know, yeah. like you have nappy hair, but uh, you know, the, the, the front door of the, the door of the car where the engine is under, you know, in the front, what do you call that?
1: Uh, so, so we, we have, we have the boot in the back, uh, but you guys call it the trunk and then, uh, and
0: we call it the trunk. Uh-huh. And with the front one, do you know Front what? is the bonnet? Exactly. Like a bonnet is something that goes in the hair in America. It's called the hood yeah. in America. So the, uh, what was the word I just heard? A rucksack, you know, is maybe what anybody in Europe might search for, but. I'm assuming maybe it's just because I am uh, culturally not educated here that maybe there's a million people in the U S who search for rucksack, but in my mind, it's more like tactical backpack or, or uh, military backpack. Right. But so it's important guys, whatever your product is, make sure you do the research in the country that you are actually going to sell in. And it's the same thing goes for when you're going to expand to Amazon, Italy, Spain, Germany, don't just do a direct translation. Because even those words are are different sometimes, or the way that people search for products in different countries are different. So, anyways, that there is a great moral of the story of my vocabulary lesson of rucksack today. But, but speaking of outdoor backpacks, have you ever made like a hydra- hydration pack like the cyclists use yeah. or a hikers yeah, use? I've made those as well. You know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I have never launched my own private label product. You know, I, I've I used to be a consultant for Amazon sellers. I launched over four hundred products, but it was all for other people, never for myself. <laughs> but there is a certain kind of hydration backpack where I was like, you know what? If I ever do make my own private label product, it's going to be this certain kind of hydration backpack that there's very little competition on. So I'm thinking if I might do a case study, you know, about, Hey, how to launch, you know, how to do the whole, the whole process here. But would you be interested in doing that with me? If, if I do decide to do this, this hydration
1: backpack. Absolutely. I could knock it out for you in 24 hours.
0: Let's do the, the, the Keen and Bradley show the Keenan bradley case study all right we'll have to talk about that after the after this episode i'm 100 I'm serious about that It's something i've been wanting to do for like a year and a half and even though i've waited this long it's not like it's been saturated it's still the same players out there so i don't want to give it away because people faster than me are going to like go jump on it but i'm going to talk to you offline about that let's do it all right, cool. Let's go back to talking about China a little bit. You know, I know you, you take people out there on trips, and we'll definitely talk about that towards the end of this episode. But for people who would go with you on one of these trips, these sourcing trips, or people who just want to go themselves to the Canton Fair, what for people in Europe and for people in the United States— What are the visa requirements these days for people who want to travel to China?
1: I mean, it's always been pretty straightforward. I've always just gone to the Chinese embassy. I've got one in Edinburgh as well. And I just apply for a two-year visa, multiple entry. You just apply for it once, they stamp it. And now for the next two years, I'm free to come and go to China as I please. And I think that I've had visas which are three months per entry, six months per entry. But one very, very important thing that a lot of people have to consider is that people just think they're going to go to China once. So they just apply for a single entry visa and then when they're in China they decide to go to Hong Kong and not a lot of people realize that they're actually crossing the border so I've known on a lot of trips like people are in China for phase two they can't unfair they go to Hong Kong and then they can't get back into China because they never got a multiple entry or a double entry visa so if you are going to China just uh, bear in mind before that if you do want to go to Hong Kong you need to get a double entry visa.
0: Okay. That's, that's, that's definitely good to know. And, you know, a lot of American people take these kind of things for granted, because basically if you have an American passport, usually you can just almost just go to any country you want. Mm -hmm. And so that might be a foreign concept to a lot. Like, what do you mean you have to go to the embassy? But yeah, I believe still here, you have to, you know, get the Chinese embassy in the United States to approve your visa and it requires sending them your passport and then they send it, send it back to you. So you can't just expect to, Hey, let me book a a flight to China And I just get there and they stamp it. I mean, 99% of the countries in the world, U.S. passport gets you anywhere, but not in China without that visa. So that's something important.
1: Yeah. And, and normally, like when you go to China as well, you need an invitation letter. So if you are going to visit a manufacturer, sometimes you just get your manufacturer to write a quick letter of a company stamp to say, you know, we are permitting Bradley Sutton to come into China to visit our factory to talk about business. And then you just print that letter out and you take it in with your visa application. And if you don't have a supplier in mind that you want to see, then even the Canton Fair write invitation letters as well. I think you, you can download it from their website. So uh, before booking any visa appointment, just double check what are the documents you need to actually provide them with as well.
0: Okay. Excellent. Excellent advice. Thank you for that. Now, you know, people go to you to help them, you know, source products or find products or find manufacturers. And I would imagine that some of these people probably give you horror stories of why they're even going to in the first place, because they're like, man, I tried to do this on my own, or I use somebody else and this and this happened. So Mm -hmm. I need you to save me. So in your, you know, 10 plus years experience, 10, 20 years experience, what are some of these common things that people have done that are you, you just like you makes you want to pull your hair out because you wish that you were there to, <laughs> to help them but here's your chance now to to help others who maybe haven't taken that leap you know w- what should they avoid
1: you know that's such a great question I'm really glad you asked because this is probably going to save a lot of people a lot of trouble but what I'm really amazed by is that uh, with all the Amazon sellers, like they're so good at essentially like generating so much traffic and, um, you know, movement on their listing and a lot of sales, but their pricing is terrible. Like when I hear the volumes that some of the sellers are doing and I hear the price that they're getting, I'm just like dumbfounded. And it's really because like a lot of the people, you know, start off by finding their manufacturer on Alibaba, but, that was, that was probably the best manufacturer for them to get started because they're very flexible to their needs. But now that they're an established and big business, they can really be working with the best manufacturers in China and getting the best prices. And a lot of them have outgrown their supplier mm-hmm. in terms of like their supplier might even be like taking their orders and giving it to other factories because they're too small to fulfill their orders. And they just don't know about it. And when I work with people who come to China and I'm like, take their product and take their price, I actually get them the best manufacturer. They can't believe like how much they're actually saving by actually working because you know these Chinese manufacturers they really they love volume right and if like if you say oh hey we're doing like 50,000 units a month like they'll bite your hand off to get that order sometimes they would even make the first order just above break even just to get your business that's how desperate they want your order and like people aren't really taking advantage of that the other thing is the other big point is you know there's a severe like lack of testing I feel like a lot of people just assume that their product is like fit for purpose I met someone uh, an Amazon seller who it's a sad story. Like they pretty much invested their life savings into their product and it was within like the fitness category. And, um, they basically didn't apply for any testing on their product and it was an item that you could heat up in a microwave or have it cool in the freezer and then like rub it on your body uh but because the testing procedures weren't followed someone bought the product put it in a microwave the product exploded caused it caused a minor injury amazon pulled it it said this is not fit for purpose they didn't have any testing certificates in in place to say that the product was fit Mm -hmm. for use uh the product got pulled and then the life savings are in the inventory, and then what can you do with that? You can't sell it anymore. But if you decided to get the product tested at source, one, you would have found out, right, the product didn't pass testing. So either you don't pay your supplier or you don't ship it or you fix it before you ship it. But when you sort of ship something, which you don't know if it's going to pass testing, and then you ask for a testing report, then you're basically wiping out your stock. So like product testing. And also like, you know, you're not expected to know what standards you're supposed to test for. But reach out to a testing house. You know, there's so many of them. Uh, There's Intertech, BV, SGS, like there's so many of them. And you can basically say, look, this is my product. I'm bringing it into the UK or US or Spanish market. What are my legal requirements to test for? for this product and they'll say well you need to test for this chemical or if it's electronic you're like it needs to be this certain voltage and then you just relay, relay that information back to your factory to say make sure you pass this before shipping and then you can get the same third party to actually carry out the uh, the testing for you and it's not even that expensive you know depending on what your product actually is um testing is not that expensive and wouldn't you much rather just have like the peace of mind that you're shipping a product that's fit for a purpose it's not going to cause any harm and then uh, you know you're good to go
0: Yeah. That's actually great advice. So how how does it work? Like, you know, are you able to, uh, when you're negotiating with the factory, is it, they're like, you know, they're going to make a thousand units or 5,000 units. And is there something then that you have to say in the contract, Hey, before, you know, before they start, I am going Mm -hmm. to use X, Y, Z quality control company and they're going to test. And then like, if, how do you make it so that they know that if it fails a test, they've got to start over again or, or, or what's the process usually with that?
1: For sure. Yeah, definitely. Before production starts, you have to stipulate, you know, what you want to test for. Because, for example, if you're doing like kids' toys, and uh, there's a sort of certain chemical in that toy, like for the paint or something that they're using, and let's say that chemical is a banned substance, then before even purchasing that chemical or going into production, they know that they can't use that particular item. So, I, I would say, look, I want to manu- manufacture this toy. It needs to pass these standards in the United States, and then your manufacturer would make one sample, and then send that sample to the testing house. They would test it. So okay, this product is fit for purpose. It's passed the test. And then it would go on and order all the raw materials and then start production. But the last thing you would want to do is order like 20,000 of this toy and then find out it, you know, filled the, filled the inspection. And then the manufacturer like, well, it's not my fault. You didn't tell me that you didn't want these hazardous materials. So definitely before you're starting any production, you have to stipulate um, what, what it is that you definitely want. And here's the thing, like there certain products have legal requirements, like a kid's toy or like a adapter like a travel plug or something like that like electronic requirements but some of them just have like industry standard requirements like say for example for a backpack you want to test the zip um that it doesn't break so like there's certain machines that will Uh, pull a zip up and down like 10,000 times or they take the fabric and they pull it at certain weights and then it has to reach a certain level before the fabric tears and then it's sort of industry standard. That's not a legal requirement. You can still like send your backpack without it. It can be like really cheap and nasty stuff and you're not going to get your listing pulled. But if you know what the industry standards are, and again, you can ask these testing houses, what are the industry standards? And then test those requirements, you know that you're bringing in a product which is basically above standard for your market.
0: Okay, that's great to know as well. Now, here's something I I believe I had talked to Steve about this too, but it's such a prevalent question and fear. I want to bring it up with you again, too. You know, a lot of people are paranoid, especially if they don't have the means to go and negotiate in person, or even if they do, their fear is because of the horror stories they've heard is, you know, how do I keep that factory from just turning around? and repackaging my product and selling it themselves on Amazon or selling it to somebody else? You know, like, how do I protect myself? Now, here's my theory. You can tell me if this is true or not, but I would imagine that like somebody like you, uh, obviously brings different, different clients or, or different customers to the same factory because they're making different products. Right. So then mm-hmm. really in this case, the factory would almost have very, even more incentive. It's like, man, I cannot, I'm not going to do this person wrong because, hey, Keen's going to take everybody's business away from me. So, like, is that one way of making sure that, you know, or, or lessening the chance of something happening is like using individuals like yourself who, who, Maybe Al if you can understand what I'm trying to say. No,
1: no, you hit me on the head because like let's say for example, you place like, I don't know, two or three million dollars worth of business to one factory, which is for twenty different products, and there's one particular product which is only maybe fifty thousand dollars of turnover. Now they're like, Do I really want to copy this guy to make an extra fifty thousand dollars when I'm getting three million dollars worth of turnover? Like it's not worth the risk. So like they're less likely to mess with you if um you know, if they really, really value your business. And that's why I would sort of, you know, place emphasis on the relationship that that you have with your factory. I can't stress highly enough, like, you know, working very, very closely with your manufacturer and building up a genuine friendship. So it's not like us versus them. It's like, now we're in this together. We're in a partnership. You know, what works for me works for you. But let's say, for example, like, you know, you're placing your first order and you haven't had the chance to really build up that relationship. And you're worried about a Chinese manufacturer copying your product. Well, what you can do is, design register your product in your home market. So if you've come up with a new concept or a new product, uh, patent it or design register it and protect yourself in your home market. So let's say they do copy your product and they do list it on Amazon or they sell it to one of your competitors. Then you can basically pull their listing to say, hey, I'm the only person which is allowed to sell this product. This is my patent or this is my design registration. And then they're required to then pull that. So Depending on how much it would cost to register your design or your product, definitely consider that. And oh, here's the other thing I do as well. Like, even if I'm worried about a uh, manufacturer copying my product, I would just tell them, look, I've design registered this in the UK, US, Europe. And I'd just even give them a fake number. And like, they're never actually going to check and go through the legal system to see if you actually have registered it. But I just tell them I have registered it just to scare them off. So they're not like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to mess with this guy because he's obviously going through the legal processes.
0: So, I mean, be honest now, has that ever happened to you where, where somebody has like either your products or one of your clients, like the factory just, you know, they're desperate, desperate times and you you catch them in it or something?
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, luckily I've got great relationships with my manufacturers, so... But I've got so many. I mean, I've developed over two and a half thousand products in China. So like it was bound to happen a a few times and, and it has happened. Like for example, I went to one factory and I developed this new like outdoor backpack and I developed it with them in the factory. Uh, put all my finishing touches on it. Really, really liked the product. Anyway, I never actually ordered it because I had enough backpacks in my range for that year. So I was like, okay, maybe I'll bring it out next year. And then, you know, later on in the year, I found that exact same product in one of my competitors' catalog. So basically, like one of my competitors went to the factory, saw this product, and they're like, oh, I like that. And then the manufacturer's like, yeah, okay, go for it. And just put their logo on it. And then they and then they ordered it. So uh, it does happen. But, you know, that person then, as a result, lost our business. And, you know, if anyone ever copies my product I just take it as a compliment that I'm good at what I do and someone actually wants to copy my product so I just I don't really let it bother me and you know whenever someone if anyone does copy your product because I'm because I love like innovation so much, even if someone does copy my product, by the time that actually hits market, I'm already working on the next thing. Uh, The other thing is that like, you know, the domestic market in China is quite big as well. So let's say, for example, a factory does want to copy your product. They might copy it and just sell it in their local town or they might just sell it in China. Like I've been to China so many times and I saw some of the products I developed with factories, like just in the China market. And when I pulled up the factory about it, they said, yeah, we made an extra couple hundred pieces and we just sold it locally. And again, I was like, well, I'm not really selling in China. So that doesn't really bother me, but I still said, you know, that's not cool. You're not supposed to do that, but you know, it happens. And I think it's probably happened to a lot of people and they just ne- they don't even know about it. So as long as you keep innovating, uh, you'll always stay ahead of the curve.
0: Yeah. I mean, I know I, I, at some point, you know, imitation is the best form of flattery, you know, they say, so it's kind of cool that they think your product is cool. Like one time I remember I used to be a, a Zumba fitness instructor and I would I had a YouTube mm-hmm. channel that got like mil, like 30 million views and I would travel the world doing Zumba. And wow. I had all these videos up and then somebody called me one day like, hey, I'm on vacation here in, I forgot if it was Peru or Chile or somewhere in uh, South America. And you know how there's like street vendors who sell DVDs? Well, I guess somebody yeah, had actually yeah. made a, a full <laughs> DVD series of my Zumba YouTube videos. Oh. It was, and that actually to me was kind of cool because I never made money really. Like I never yeah. sold my my Zumba videos, but I was like, well, that's kind of cool that somebody actually liked my videos so much. They're selling it on, on the streets of South America. But, you know, when we're talking Amazon business, obviously the attitude, you know, would be a little bit different because, you know, it's taking money potentially mm-hmm. out of your pocket. Well, you know, th- Kian, thank you so much for, for coming on here. Now, I'm sure... I have some more questions that I'm going to get to ask you because we're going to get off this call. We'll continue. We'll continue talking. But for the other people who have questions sure. that 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 they haven't got answered or they want to learn about your different mm-hmm. trips to China or or I know you just love helping sellers, you know, helping them with their sourcing questions. So how can they find you? Or how can they
1: reach you? Sure. So actually I just started a Facebook group uh, a couple of weeks ago and it's just called Sourcing with Kian and that's Kian, K-I-A-N. And, um, it's just a, a group on Facebook, uh, completely free, no upsells, no courses, nothing like that. If you've got a question, I jump in and I normally answer it within 24 hours. Sometimes i make a video. Uh, sometimes the community answers questions. So I would say if you want some sourcing advice, go to, um, sourcing with Kian on, uh, Facebook. The other thing is, um, yeah, there's a, China trip I help out with called China Magic, and uh, there's a website called ChinaMagicTrip.com where I'm one of the mentors on the trip, and um, we basically visit phase two of the Canton. Fair, uh, Global Sources in Hong Kong, and then Phase 3, of the Canton Fair. And then we'll go and find products. And I'm sort of there with you because I'm in China sourcing my own products at the same time. But I've got a great opportunity where I can help Amazon sellers uh, at that time as well. So we sort of look at products together, negotiate prices. And then at night, we sort of mastermind. So if you want more information on that, uh, you can join my group and, or send me a message or go to Chinamagictrip.com.
0: Perfect. All right, Keen, thanks you very much. And we'll hope to have you back here on the show in the future.